We've spent the last couple of weeks together talking about decision-making and the will of God. We have uh, talked about how, uh, tried to answer this question, how does God's sovereignty over the world that he made and what the Bible says about his goodness, how does that, those two things, how do those two things affect the way you make decisions? And I've argued that the Bible teaches us to make decisions according to the wisdom that God gives us through his word. And today we're going to talk about a particular um, specific issue that this topic raises. Today we're going to talk about calling. Calling. Now, if you don't speak fluent Christianese, um, if you haven't been around the church uh, for too long, let me explain what we Christians sometimes mean when we use the term calling. Uh, the way we use it, uh, calling is a certain sense, it's an impression, a, a conviction or a leading that God gives people that provides specific direction for their occupation. Uh, we almost always use the term calling to talk about a pastor or a missionary, a full-time vocational worker. Pastors and missionaries are called people and in order to become a pastor or a missionary, you need to be able to describe your calling. You need to be able to tell the story about when it was that God specifically, personally, clearly and directly pointed you out and sent you into the ministry. If you ask uh, pastors and missionaries about this, uh, they'll tell you, some of them will tell you, that remembering your calling is crucial. It's what keeps you going in the ministry. You have to have the sense of calling or you're going to quit. Because people, Christian people in churches can be mean. And if you're going to be a spiritual shepherd, you have to know your calling because sometimes sheep can bite. You're not going to be surprised to hear what I'm going to say in the next uh, 10 seconds. Even though we Christians talk about calling this way, and even though we've talked about this for a long time, I don't think that's the best way to talk about calling. I don't think it's the best way to read the Bible when it comes to calling. I don't think it's a helpful way to think about your occupation. I don't think focusing on uh, calling is the best way to follow the will of God. Here are some of my concerns, aside from the fact that I think it misreads the Bible. The concept of calling sometimes confuses people. Sometimes it keeps people out of full-time ministry who should be in it because they haven't received a call. And sometimes... It puts people into full-time ministry who shouldn't be there because God called them, and who are you to question God's calling? The other thing that it does, talking about calling this way, is I think it creates unnecessary barriers uh, between those who are in full-time vocational work and the rest of God's people. I, I have a calling. The rest of you just have jobs. Right? Hmm. Uh, so here's how I want to proceed this morning. Uh, uh, first, I want to talk about how the Bible uses the word calling, uh, not the way we usually think about uh, full-time vocational ministry. I want to talk about the word calling in the Bible. Second, I want to answer the question that this, asks, this raises. So if calling isn't the best way to think about your job or your occupation, well, or, or who should be a pastor or missionary, how do we make that decision? I'm going to answer that second question two ways. First, we're going to talk about the biblical qualifications. Calling isn't listed anywhere in those biblical qualifications. 
And then the second thing I want to do is I want to borrow from John Newton. Yes, that John Newton, the uh, creator of the fig. No, 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 no. John Newton, Amazing Grace, the author of Amazing Grace, John Newton. Uh, We're going to talk, I'm going to borrow from him, and uh, I want to give you some ideas of what he said about how followers of Jesus should think about their work. Uh, Actually, I hope that will be helpful for all of us this morning. So first, though, let's start by talking about calling in the Bible. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 is where I want to direct your attention. Matthew 22. It's a long passage, so I didn't print it out. The rest of the passages that we're going to look at are printed out on that blue handout that's in your bulletin. So that would be helpful for you to follow along if you want. But we're going to look at this passage, this parable that Jesus told in Matthew 22. Now, Matthew 22, the parable that Jesus uses, uh, uh, tells here, does not use the English word calling at all. It actually uses the word invite. So whenever you see the English word invite, you should think calling. It's the translation of that very important Greek word kaleo, uh, which means to call or I call. So whenever you see the word invited, think called. I might, if I'm paying attention enough, I might say called instead of invited. Invited is a good translation. He's talking about a party, so it's a fine translation, but it's the word calling is at the bones here. Matthew 22, verse 1. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been called, invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. (laughs) I'm confused about the timing in this story. This banquet's been ready for a long time, I think. The wedding banquet is ready, but those I called, those I invited, did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled, filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. There's a lot going on in this story. We'll talk more about the details of of much of the story when we begin walking through Matthew uh, starting in February. But the image here is not difficult. God's kingdom is like a banquet. It's a banquet that's in honor of his son. And there are invited guests people who have been invited to this banquet. In the story of the Bible, I think he's talking here about the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But as as Matthew tells us, they did not receive Jesus when he came. They didn't recognize his authority. They were the invited guests, 
but because of their excuses and because of their hostility, they refuse to come. So the master sends the invitation to anyone. Anyone can come, the good, the bad, anyone. In the parallel in Luke, when he tells this story, the master tells his servants to invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Fill my house. Fill my house. Come, come. Anyone can come. Here's the broad invitation to all people. That's the way the Bible uses the word calling. The first way that the Bible uses the word calling, it's the invitation to follow Jesus. The invitation to follow Jesus. And it's broad. It's to everyone. And our church participates in this calling. We are echoing Jesus' words by inviting people to follow him. We do it all the time. This is our mission as our church, as a church, to repeat this call. Uh, you're invited to come to join in the feast of God. His son is the guest of honor in God's kingdom. We invite children to come on Wednesday night through our Awana clubs. Oh, there's a lot of kids here on Wednesday night, this year in particular. Oh my goodness, so many children in this building. Uh, we invite students to come through Pyro. Every Sunday morning when we gather together, the invitation is made public. If you're not a follower of Jesus, Come, you can come. You can follow him. We support workers who serve overseas because we want the invitation to go out to European people and to South American people and to Asian people. We want all kinds of people, all kinds of people to come. You can come to the feast of God. Not everyone will respond to this call. Some people will make lame excuses. They may be hostile. But, but the call is for everyone. This is one of the ways that the Bible, particularly Jesus, uses the term calling, the invitation to follow him. Now, at the end of the story, Jesus tells us this odd little little ending here. Jesus says that there is a requirement to your coming. You have to be dressed appropriately. It's a wedding. You have to wear your wedding clothes. What's he talking about there? We're not going to linger over this for very long, but it does give us a moment to to reflect on how Jesus tells us to respond to his invitation. It's interesting. This is the story about clothing. Do you know how much clothing is mentioned in the Bible? If you have any interest in this topic, trace the story uh, of clothing through the Bible and how the Bible talks about clothing. It emphasizes at the beginning because uh, when the first man and the first woman were made, they were not clothed. Text says they were naked and unashamed. Being made in God's image, standing before him, uh, they were without sin completely and before God and before one another, they were unashamed and naked. But notice what happens when they disobey God in the book of Genesis. One of the first signs that they know something terrible has happened is that they realize that they're naked and they're ashamed. Ashamed of who they are. Ashamed of what they've done. And God comes and in a great act of kindness, God clothes them. We human beings still bear that shame. There are pockets of people, you can find them uh, around, that say that really what we need to do is, is we just need to cast off the shame and forget about the shame and live as if we have no shame. But, but it's endemic to who we are. We're, we're guilty and we're ashamed. 
But God has sent his son to bear our shame. He hung naked on the cross. Gospels tell us that the soldiers gambled over his clothing. Again, more clothing in the Bible. Dead men don't need clothes. So the soldiers steal his clothes, even as he hangs dying on the cross, and they gamble over his clothes. He bore our shame and our sin on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God that we deserved. He died and rose again. And now God gives to all who ask him life and forgiveness. He clothes us again, not with animal skins, but with the righteousness of his own dear son. These are the best hand-me-downs in all creation. Jesus' own righteousness. That's the clothing that you need to enjoy this feast. Without it, you can't come. Joe Bailey wrote a poem. I I really like this. It's called The Psalm of Awakening. Maybe I've read it to you before. Listen. Lord, I want to die in my sleep. I want to go to bed and be awakened by you saying, Get up, son. It's the first day of school, the beginning of your new job, the dawn of eternity. Here are your clothes. Your older brother wore them first. Now they're yours forever, white and fresh and clean and smelling of heaven. (laughs) So that's the first sense of the word calling. Jesus issued it. And we, his people, echo that invitation. Come. You can come. Jesus has made it possible for you to come. Calling. Now here's a second sense in which the Bible uses the word calling. The second sense is the one that the Apostle Paul used most often. You could describe it as effectually bringing a person to salvation. Effectually bringing a person to salvation. It's determinative. It's effective. It's a powerful call. You can ignore the first call, and lots of people do. You cannot ignore the second call. It, it, he calls, and you answer. Oh, we already read, uh, Jared read so well for us, uh, from Romans chapter 8, one of those passages that uses the phrase calling that way. Look again at Romans 8.28. Um, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called, there it is, according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Some theologians refer to verse 30 as this golden chain. So uh, if you are predestined, you will be called. If you are called, you will be justified. If you are justified, you will be glorified. They go together uh, uh, without doubt. Uh, if you're, if you're, you, and you can put any part together. If you're predestined, you're going to be justified. If you're justified, you'll also be called. If you're, if you're uh, predestined, you'll also be glorified. They, they just hang together. Because this calling that Paul's writing about is a certain and sure thing. It's effective. It's powerful. So much so that, that the Apostle Paul could talk about followers of Jesus as the called. Uh, in the silver chair, C.S. Lewis writes about this a little bit in the wonderful way that he does. In the silver chair, the main characters, two little, boys, uh, two little children, Jill Pole and Eustace Scrub. If you're looking for names for your children, I don't recommend Eustace. But if you want, if you want, 
Uh, well, together, Eustace and Jill enter Narnia. They meet Aslan, and Aslan the lion tells them that he has been calling them. And Jill's very confused about this. She says, I was wondering, I mean, could there be some mistake? Because nobody called me and Scrub, you know. Scrub said we were to call to Aslan, and perhaps he would let us in. And we did, and we found the door open. And Aslan says to her, you would not have called on me unless I had been calling you. Effectually bringing a person to salvation, calling. Now there's a third sense of calling in the Bible. This is the way we're used to thinking about calling. But examples of it actually are surprisingly sparse in comparison to the other two uses of the word. This calling is a special commissioning to ministry. The special commissioning to ministry. There are several examples of the Bible in the Bible. Think of Moses in the burning bush or Isaiah in the temple uh, or Paul and his vision on the road uh, to Damascus. Um, Paul often spoke of himself, I, I am called to be an apostle, called to be an apostle. Um, here's an example that I want to look at a little bit more depth. Acts 13 verse 1. Look what Acts 13 verse 1 says. Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers and he lists them. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. It's interesting, this list. Uh, it would have been wonderful to be a member of the Church of Antioch. You have a variety of nationalities, a vi- variety of ethnicities, a variety of financial uh, situations, of uh, a, a diverse background uh, spiritually before they became followers of Jesus. I bet there were a lot of reasons for them to argue with each other and to love one another. It would have been great. Well, keep going. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There it is. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now the text doesn't tell us how the Holy Spirit spoke. Maybe he spoke audibly. Maybe. I think it's more likely, in keeping with the book of Acts, I think it's more likely that he spoke through a human prophet. Some human prophet, while they were praying and fasting, spoke, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke this message from the Holy Spirit. The specific calling from God, the first mission from the church outside of the Middle East. Leave the Middle East and go. Go to where I'm going to call you. Then, in Acts 16, 6, there's another call. This is the Macedonian call, if you're old enough to remember the uh, song, Send the Light. It's verse 2, verse 3, one of them. We have heard the Macedonian call. Send the light, send the light. Some of you will recognize that. But look at Acts 16.6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia, it's cold, and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Isn't that surprising? How did the Holy Spirit stop them from preaching in Asia? What did he do? They don't know. But he keeps at it. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. What was that like? I don't know that either. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. Macedonia was across the sea. Uh, the Aegean, I believe, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I love that phrase, concluding that God had preached the gospel. Did you really have to think about that? Like, Paul had a vision. It's pretty clear. Did you vote on it? I don't think so. We see examples of this uh, through the Bible. These passages have been used to teach you that to know God, that God's will for your life... If you want to know what God's will for your life and vocational ministry is, you have to have some sort of experience like this. Some sort of impression, conviction, leading that God is indicating what you're to do. But the problem with talking like that is I think that what is described here is exceptional and not the rule. It's the exception and not the rule. I don't think we should make this mandatory for pastors and missionaries. All these stories involve supernatural revelation of some kind. Uh, not an impression, not a conviction, not a leading, but, but a supernatural revelation, a vision, a prophecy, something like that. These callings seem to come at key points, key moments in the outworking of God's plans. In Acts 13, they get Paul moving on the missionary trail. In Acts 16, the gospel crosses the boundaries into Europe. Um, new places, new missions, new works. God's moving the church along. It's interesting. How, how does Paul decide to go on his second missionary journey? Did you ever think about that? So Acts 13 is his first. How does he decide to go on his second? Well, Acts 15 tells us. Acts 15:36. Why does he go? Sometime later, Paul and Barnabas, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. It's not the Spirit here sending them out, at least not directly. It's the concern of the Apostle Paul, his his pastoral concern for the men and women who became believers on the first journey. Paul's thinking strategically. Paul's thinking pastorally. That's how he is moving here. Now, I have a suspicion about what some of you are thinking. You might want to complain like this. You might want to say, hey. I answered a hey, that's okay. Hey, hey. You keep criticizing impressions and leading and convictions. I think that the Holy Spirit does convict me and does lead me and does impress on me what to do. Why are you trying... You, why are you trying to ruin the intimate relationship I have with God? All you want to talk about is wisdom, which is just intellectual. It's not spiritual. It's not relational. Why are you taking this away from us? I understand that objection. It's a good question to raise. I have two responses to it, things I want you to think about. First, I am not denying at all that God can speak to his people through impressions and leadings and convictions. Remember last week I said, um, I quoted somebody whose name I can't remember, uh, never resist the impulse to pray. Try to live by that. I don't know where the impulse comes from, sometimes various places. If you want to tell me about your calling experience, I would enjoy hearing about your calling experience. But what I'm concerned about is the idea that those impressions are sufficient indications of what God wants you to do. Take those impressions, those convictions, those leadings. Let's hold them up to the scriptures to think about them together. That's what I want to emphasize here. Let's be wise in how we think about those impressions, convictions, leading. Second, here's something that I want to suggest to you very tentatively, 
I won't sound tentative, but I, I want to suggest it to you tentatively. And I want you to think about it. I wonder if there is a connection between this longing for this intimacy with God, this, this connection with God, if there's a connection between that longing and a disconnection from other followers of Jesus. Follow me here. Christianity is a personal faith. Jesus calls us friends. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell within us. That's true. Christianity is a personal faith, but it is not a private faith. I don't think that normal Christianity consists of me and God forever together, period. But me and God and His people together. God speaks to us through his word as we come together. He comforts us through his people. He serves us through his people. He protects us through his people. He leads us through his people. See, the New Testament would be confused by followers of Jesus who say that they're intimately acquainted with Jesus but have no connection to his followers. The New Testament would be very confused by that claim. I wonder if some of your dissatisfaction with my caution about impressions or leading is tied to isolation from God's people. Um, Look at how Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 4.10. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as the one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Speak the words of God. Serve with the strength of God. There's more to be mined from the community of God's people than you probably realize. I think one of the ways that we should think about following the will of God is following the will of God in the context of God's people. Do you have fellow followers of Jesus who will help you make important decisions about your job, about your house, what you want to buy, about relationships that you want to start, about a family that you want to grow? Do you have followers of Jesus that you trust, that know you well enough and can point out things to you about your life and who will tell you if you're being crazy? Do you have do you have fellow followers of Jesus who can help with that? How would you respond if in a, if in a, a, a meeting of the church the elders came to you and said, you know, we, we pray a lot about what God is doing and, and about his work. We see something in you. We want you to think about this move in your life. Do you have a relationship with people that that, that would be possible or that would be a conceivable thing? Because God works through his people. Now, I have a little bit of time and I want to ask, answer this very important question. If calling, if this personal subjective moment of conviction is not the standard for missionaries and pastors, then how do we tell? What is the standard? And I want to answer that question by reading Paul and quoting John Newton. All right, let's, let's look Paul, at Paul first. How do we know who can serve as pastors and missionaries? Paul tells us who's qualified. The biblical qualifications are listed twice. Uh, We'll read the ones from Titus, Titus 1. This is important because we're in the process of nominating elders. It's a good time of year to read this passage. An elder must be blameless, Titus 1 says, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, 
Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy messages has been taught, as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Notice there's nothing about calling in here at all. It doesn't say anything about that. Isn't that interesting? What are the qualifications? What does it say? An elder, a pastor must be four things. One, a man. We can talk about this some other time. This is about elders and pastors, not missionaries. They're different categories, but we'll start there. A man. Number two, he must be spiritually mature. Spiritually mature. Look at all those qualifications. An elder is someone who's making evident spiritual progress in these things. Three, able to lead God's people. Demonstrated in the leadership of his home. Since, verse 7, an overseer manages God's household, he must be, well, he manages God's household, and it's been evident in how he's led his family. So, uh, able to lead God's people. Four, able to teach God's word in various contexts. Perhaps not preaching all the, always, but an elder has to be able to take God's word and help people apply it to their daily lives. Those four things. Also important here, I would add, is desire. Desire. It's actually in our constitution. It's funny. Um, I, I read the list of qualifications for elders every now and then, and there's four listed in our our. Um, um, uh, constitution. Uh, uh, it's got to be a man. He's got to be a member of the church for two years. He's got to be biblically qualified. And number four is he's got to be willing to serve. <laughs> we don't draft people into the eldership. Desire. First Timothy 3. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. You should want this role. Your desire to do it is more important than your subjective sense of calling. And churches that recognize these qualities in their people may call them into service. But that's different than what we often mean when we talk about calling. There's nothing about calling the way we use it in this passage. How do we know who can serve as a pastor or missionary? The Bible gives us qualifications. Now, how else do we know? How else do we know? And here I want to borrow from John Newton, channeled through Tim Keller. Here's three things that all of us should think about when we think about our occupation. Here's the first one. Need. Need. What needs in the world do I resonate with in my community? Don't start with who you are. That's often where people start. They start with who they are and what they like to do and what they want to do. Don't start with you. Start with the needs in the community around you. Are there particular needs in the community around you that move you more? Uh, Particular causes or issues that you particularly track with? I think that every follower of Jesus, recognizing the great need in the world for the gospel, should at least consider whether or not they should think about full-time vocational ministry in an unreached area with unreached people. Because that need is humongous. Need. I think this is a good question to ask, too. Some of you should think about this because all you have is a job. You have a job. And all you think about that is it's just a job. And some of you are tired of your job. I understand that because jobs are hard. 
No, we live in a world, a broken world. There's thorns and thistles everywhere. And we have jobs. Maybe you have a job, you're tired of it, you can't get out of it, you just have a job. Maybe you should start to think about the need that your job is meeting. You have a job. How is God using your work to meet the needs of people? If you start thinking about your work in that way, it might change how you view the job that you have. What needs that people have are you meeting with the work that you already have? You should think about that. Second on John Newton's list, ability, ability. Here's where you think about yourself, and to do this well, you need the input and advice of others. So what abilities do you have? The church is made up of people who have different gifts and different skills. Frankly, I confess, I struggle with envy over some of the things that some of you in this room can do. It would be so useful for my life if I could do, do what you do. We're at different stages in maturity. We have different levels of personal energy. We have different tastes. We have different preferences. You have abilities, different abilities. Third, the third word, opportunity. Opportunity. Where do the community's needs and your abilities meet? That's an opportunity. It's a place where you can serve. And it is a place where God can equip you and enable you to serve well. If you think about what you do and run it through that list, does it point you in directions? Does it guide you in a path that you should take? Some of you may say, there's a need for the gospel in this unreached part. And, and I do have abilities. I think that would, 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 would work in that area. And that's the opportunity. I should go and take it. So that, that may be God leading you in that direction. As I finish, look at Isaiah 28, 24 to 26. I, I love this verse. It's wonderful. When a farmer plows for planting, does he plow continually? No. Does he keep on breaking up and working the soil? No. When he has leveled the surface, does he not sow caraway and scatter cumin? Does he not plant what it, wheat in its place, barley in its plot, and spelt in its field? His God instructs him and teaches him the right way. Isn't that an amazing verse? God teaches farmers how to farm. Verses 27 and 28 talk more about the farmer's skill. Then verse 29 says, All this also comes from the Lord Almighty, whose plan is wonderful, whose wisdom is magnificent. Who's at work in the field? Well, the farmer's at work, yes. But God is at work. God is at your work. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I come before you this morning and I am thankful to you for your mercy in my life. Lord, I'm, I'm thankful for the, this time that, that I have had with your word and this up to 20 years ago, the, the church had a need for a, a pastor, and I had training in it, and, and the need and ability met in this opportunity, and I've been pursuing it, and I am thankful to you for it. Lord, I pray this morning for these dear brothers and sisters. Lord, some of them, you've given them abilities 
and there are needs that they resonate with, and, and, and they're not taking advantage of opportunities, and you want them to move. Some of these dear people need to be moved into new avenues of serving and working. I pray that you would use us as a church to encourage them rightly toward that end. And then, Father, there are some this morning who are just discouraged because what they have is a job. I pray for your mercy in their lives. Lord, I, I, I pray that you would help them to see your work in their work. Help them when they meet the inevitable thorns and thistles that, that, are, that all of us face in our working world that that would not so discourage them that they cannot see and appreciate you at work in their work. Help us, Lord. Call us to follow you faithfully through your word and through the encouragement that we bring by your spirit. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.